Okay. Um, so this English session this morning. Um, can you please kindly explain the difference, in your view, between Chinese Buddhism, Thai Buddhism, and other types of Buddhism? What are the similarities and differences? And since Buddhism originated from India, uh, what is then the differentiator between Buddhism and Sikhism or Hinduism? Okay, well, this would probably be like a degree course in university. Then. Um, <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll try to answer in five minutes. Yeah. Um, um, so because I'm summarizing so much, this is like very general, okay? And um, um, so after the Buddha passed away, um, given that the different communities of monks uh, were spread out throughout large area of uh, northeast India, mainly, probably all the way from, say, Calcutta to Delhi. Um, and there wasn't very much communication between them. Um, you have inevitably got differences of emphasis. Let's say you had one teacher who was like a lot of metta, so maybe he'd emphasize all the metta teaching, someone else who like really his own practice did a lot of a supa and, and stressed a supa, someone else who was more scholarly and stressed more scholarly side. So you've got those kinds of um, differences, natural, um, given the geography and the lack of communication. Um, but you also um, had differences over the Vinaya, the monk's discipline. And the rule that came up right from the very beginning, and it's been a, um, a bone of contention or a cause of argument right up to the present day, is the use of money. And even right very soon after the Buddha passed away, there were already monks who didn't want to keep this rule and looking for, um, for ways of, of getting around it, really. Um, there are also... Um, in the attempts to systematize the teachings, then differences arose. So when we say the pradraipitok, okay, so there are three, three things there. You have the suttas, which are the teachings of the Buddha, then the vinaya, which, which is all about the monks' discipline and, and their, uh, their own practice and all this sort of, uh, how to organize um, ordinations and um, all that, what we call Sangha Gamma, the formal meetings of the Sangha, how you deal with naughty monks, um, how you, uh, katinas and all these kind of um, ritual, ceremonial things, um, all the rules concerning um, what kinds of kutis you can have and what things you can have in the kutis and what kinds of material your robes can be made out of and what your bowl can, huge. You know, when we, uh, most people say the monk's discipline is 227 rules. That's only one part of the Vinaya. That's what we call the Patimoka. In fact, there are thousands upon thousands of rules. Okay. Now, because the Buddha didn't teach in a systematic way, he didn't have like a, a textbook or a, a philosophy 
which he just expounded everywhere. His teaching, uh, although it was based on timeless principles, uh, the expression of it naturally over 45 years changed, just like any great teacher. If you say the same thing in the same way over and over again, people get bored or they don't pick it up. So you, you find fresh ways of expressing the same things. And this was the case uh, with the Buddha also. Now, while the Buddha was alive, that was okay. But once the Buddha, or really monks were thinking about this before the Buddha passed away, and in, term, in order to be able to transmit this into the future for the next hundreds of years or thousands of years, it was necessary to create some kind of system. And for monks to look through all the teachings and try to uh, pull out the main principles and make a, a structure, like a logical structure that could be preserved and studied and passed on. And this is the, the, um, how the, what we call the Abhidhamma or the Prapitam uh, came about. Now, when the monks started to, to do this, um, monks in different areas, different groups of monks, they come up with a little bit different system. Uh, and also, the um, there are some gray areas where the Buddha didn't talk about something uh, specifically, and yet it, these were like um, points of controversy in religious groups of that time. So monks said, look, we really be able to have to say, what's the Buddhist answer to this? For instance, you say, oh, the Buddhists say everything's impermanent, everything passes away. Well, then how do you explain memory? If something passes away, how can you remember it if it's already passed away? Where, where, where is it stored? So there were many different theories that came up to explain this. So if you look at all the different um, uh, Tripitakas and different um, uh, Sanskrit and Chinese and all the different renderings of the, um, of the basic teachings, what you find is that if you look in the Pali canon, what we call the Pali canon, the Pali, the discourses of the Buddha, and then you look in the Chinese translation or the Sanskrit translation, then it's like 90, 95% the same. Very, very similar. But, and if you look at the Vinaya, is the same. But if you look at the Abhidhamma of each school, it's very different. Um, so, um, so for that reason, um, I don't give the same weight to the Abhidhamma because there's quite a lot of interpretation from, uh, from the monks in the attempt to create a system out of something which was a much, much more spontaneous and, and without that kind of structure. Now, um, so there's, we can, we don't really have a good word to, to explain that. There were like different schools, we can say. Um, we have the problem in Thai because we have this word Nikai, and, and Nikai we use for within the Thai monastic order. We have Tamayut Nikai and Mahanikai, and then we'd, we'd use it to mean schools of Buddhism. So it's a little bit um, confusing. But uh, the schools of Buddhism that developed over time, uh, we can put them into two kind of schools. Uh, let me say not schools, two kind of groups, okay? 
And one group I would call like the conservatives. And so the conservative idea is that the teachings the Buddha gave us are perfect. They're complete. Don't need to be changed. Don't need to take anything out. Don't need to add anything. All we need to do is look after what the Buddha taught us and pass it on to future generations. Okay, that's the conservative idea of Buddhism. Now, there were probably about 20 different schools in this conservative group. And over the course of time, they all disappeared except for one. And that was the group that moved southwards into South India and then to Sri Lanka. And being on the island of Sri Lanka, then they were protected from persecution and from um, various uh, dangers. And that, Therav- and that Buddhism is what we now call Theravada. So that um, from Sri Lanka, then it spread to Southeast Asia. And so the Buddhism that we have in Thailand today um, is that is derived from the Theravada tradition that moves south from Northeast India to Sri Lanka. And similarly, uh, it's the Buddhism which is found in Burma and uh, Cambodia and Laos and some parts of South Vietnam. Now, the, the other idea uh, about Buddhism, and this is also, um, it has foundation in the Buddhist teaching, is that um, we shouldn't be so, cons- like conservative idea is, look, this is the teaching, um, you can either like it or lump it. It means like if you're, if you're interested, I'll teach it to you. If you're not, then, you know, forget it. I'm not going to change it for you. But uh, uh, to make it more popular. But uh, the Mahayana idea, this is the other group, the more kind of liberal group is, this is such a wonderful thing that we shouldn't attach to the less essential elements, should just keep the heart of the teaching, but be willing to adapt to different cultures and different environments so that the Buddha's teaching can spread. And of course, with that philosophy, um, it was much more likely to be successful. And this kind of Buddhism, what we call Mahayana, spread northwards into Kashmir, into uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Most of those Stan countries were all, uh, they were all uh, Mahayana Buddhists at one time. And then, of course, to China and Tibet and to Korea and uh, Japan. Um, and because of this um, idea of being flexible, then it tended to um, change a lot more than the conservative schools and to adapt to the existing culture. So, for instance, in, in Tibet, um, the existing religious tradition is called Bun. And Bun is um, a kind of a mystical, shamanistic religion, a lot of magic. And that was absorbed into the Tibetan tradition. In China, of course, the, um, the um, original or the, the uh, dominant cultural tradition was Confucianism and Taoism. And so the, the Buddhism, the different schools, um, different Mahayana schools in China um, uh, developed this relationship, uh, kind of um, 
conversation, we can say, with Taoism uh, and with Confucianism was very affected by them. Now, um, an example, before Buddhism was really accepted in China, it was a number of, a few hundred years past. And um, to give an example of how things changed with the Sangha, in, in India, um, from pre-Buddhist time, it's always been an accepted idea in the society that people who are following a religious quest should be supported. It's for the good of the whole society. If you have a certain number of people who are like relig religious professionals who don't have to worry about making a living and, and uh, raising a family but just can put every – can be like completely devoted like um, – scholars you know not have to worry about anything just do do your work and and so um arms round and people making offerings of basic um material support for religious figures was accepted part of indian society that's not the case in china and in china there's this ethos of hard work if you don't work hard you don't eat and so when the the monks from india went to China, they tried to go on Bindabad. Nobody wants to put any food in it. They say, you're a strong young man, you can go and, uh, go and work for it. Why should we give you anything to eat? Um, and so this was a real uh, obstacle. And over the course of time, they decided they needed to just abandon many of the uh, vineyard rules that um, prevent monks from being independent. Because the Buddha didn't want the monks to be independent from the lay, lay Buddhists. So a monk is not allowed to grow his own food, cannot even pick fruit from a tree, uh, cannot cook, cannot store food overnight. So many of these different rules mean that there has to be a daily contact between the monks and the lay people in Theravada Buddhism. So to make sure that the monks don't just sort of go off and live in the mountains and never do any good for the society. Um, but in the Mahayana uh, um, in China, they realized this wasn't working. So um, they changed the system and they uh, started to buy land around the monastery and then to farm the land themselves. So the monks became farmers and then uh, they cooked their own food. And so, of course, when the monks are um, preparing, cooking, uh, planting, cooking their own food, then there was a move to vegetarianism, uh, which wasn't possible for the Theravada monks who are dependent on the generosity of the local people. And the monks became more separate from society because they didn't have to rely on them for food every day. So this is the way that um, some of the teachings changed. And in the Mahayana then, um, also a lot of new teachings, new philosophies, uh, which were developed by great monks. And, they, and some of them deviated more and more from the original. So if you see some of the Buddhist sects in Japan, for instance, their teachings are almost unrecognizable. Uh, from the Theravada teaching. They move so far away. Um, for instance, um, after about, um, let's say about a thousand or more years ago, 
Um, their teachers in Japan started to say, we're in the, um, the degenerate age. Uh, human beings in this degenerate age don't have the potential for enlightenment in the same way that they did in the past. And we just have to be very humble and accept that. And so uh, that being the case, there was no need for monks to, um, to be celibate, have monks have families and just be part of the community. And then there was a, this whole belief that um, there is a Buddha called Amitabha Buddha in a, um, in a Buddha realm or a Buddha field. And if you could um, uh, ask humbly for his kindness, then you could be reborn with him in his Buddha field and then be enlightened there. So you, um, you have this Amitabha put, you know, sort of Amitofu, um, that whole idea of praying to what is really sort of praying to God uh, or praying to Buddha, which is not so different from idea in, in Christian or, or theistic sects. So, you know, this is the way that things um, developed. Um, <clears throat> some of the schools that um, passed away or disappeared uh, are very, had very interesting ideas. Um, for instance, the Theravada uh, teaching is that if you become enlightened, you become a Sotabana, Prasodaban, or one of the Praaryabukhon, uh, until Arahant, then that's, um, there's no regress. You can't go back to being unenlightened once you've been enlightened. But there was a Buddhist sect that argued that you could. That if someone became enlightened and then they thought, oh yeah, everything's, I'm okay now, and we're just kind of lazy and didn't, uh, didn't practice, um, then it was possible that they could go back to um, being unenlightened again. Um, one of the most influential ideas um, was that um, the uh, realization of arahantship, uh, to become an arahant, is not the highest enlightenment. There's something beyond that. And this they call Buddhahood. So the word Buddha has a different meaning in the Mahayana schools than it does in Theravada. So we have this, we now we're in the, uh, we're disciples of the Buddha who lived 2,500 years ago in India. There's only one Buddha. But for uh, people in Mahayana countries, then Buddha became um, like the highest level of enlightenment and that people on like the, the, the fast track, um, this is the idea in Vajrayana Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism, they want to become uh, Buddha. They don't want to become Arahant. They want to become Buddha because Arahant's not all the way there. Um, so, and this is uh, right through the society. I mean, I, I, I'm walking through a Tibetan village um, a couple of years ago and all the old ladies and all the old people come rushing out of their houses and they're, and they're all saying, oh, a living Buddha has come to our home. Um, you know, we, that was how they expressed their, their faith, you know, uh, whereas in Thailand you would say, oh, prapati bati bati bachok mabrod. 
Uh, they would they would say, or oh, living Buddhas come amongst us. You see, so have a very different idea of what the word Buddha means. I, as I say, it could go on um, all, all day. If, if, if is anything any further doubts about this? Anything you particularly differences between different kinds of Buddhism? If there is, you can ask again later on. Mm. Does the concept of work hard, play hard, get along with the Buddhist teachings? Um, <laughs> well, I, I think it, it really depends on how you define the meaning of that phrase or idiom. Um, what it what it does sometimes or often mean is that you know when you work you just work like crazy um don't think about anything else um and then you get so stressed out that all you want to do is just um <laughs> go crazy um and get drunk or do something really extreme to let out all the pressure that you've accumulated while you've been working hard um so I don't think it's um, a particularly wise attitude to life myself. I mean, it sound, when you're young, it kind of sounds cool, you know, but um, <laughs> the older you get, the less cool it sounds. Yeah. Um, um, well, I, I think that, you know, the idea of um, what is the idea of working hard? What does that really mean, like work hard? And um, there's, you know, there's, there's this um, kind of culture of like working incredibly long hours, particularly in America. And there's this idea that that's somehow heroic. You know, it's like, wow, you know, he took so many hours every, every, every there's a hundred hour a week or whatever it is. And like, that's kind of something to be praised. I, I mean, I think it's a bit stupid myself. But, you know, um, was, um it really is, you know, what, what's this, you know, what, what do you want to do with your life? What are your, what are your values in life? And a lot of times these kinds of, um, values are, um, promoted and they're used to brainwash people, frankly, um, in modern, particularly the American form of capitalism, um, Often uh, that that idea of um, a humane or caring relationship between um, um, management and workers is 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 uh, is completely absent. And the idea is you you've got so many people wanting jobs, you create that kind of situation where there's competition for jobs. Um, you give a lot of money, and then you take people on, and then you and you just burn them out burn them out and throw them away and get someone new. Um, but how do you get people who were willing to voluntarily allow themselves to get burnt to cinders and get thrown on the rubbish heap? Well, you tell them it's really heroic and it's like work hard, play hard, that kind of thing. So uh, I think it's, it, it's uh, really good to, to look in terms of big picture of your life and working life and um, if you're working so hard that you really need to 
the only way that you can uh, relax is by um, you know partying until the early hours and just going a bit crazy for a while doesn't sound like such a balanced life to me um, and I, I like the idea of balance and sustainability um, and and doing things which are creating uh, good causes and conditions for long-term flourishing as a human being um, rather than sort of short-term um, make the best of things while you're young and just go for everything. Um, but it's uh, my opinion. Anybody disagree? You're anybody quite welcome to disagree with me. I can like hear other people's opinions. Okay, why are there some words in the prayers? These are not prayers, these are chants, okay? Prayer means you, you pray to somebody, uh, these are chants, which men and women have to pronounce differently. Anakito, anakita, and why do we mock grab long only during specific parts? Okay, well, as native Thai speakers, you should be able to work this one out. Um, if you had someone from England saying, why at the end of the sentences do men say krap and women say ka? Uh, 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 it's exactly the same. Um, it's just uh, the language. Uh, they have different um, uh, forms at the end of the word which uh, determine whether the speaker is a male or a female. Um, why, do you, why don't you mock grab long only? Well, because if you mock grab long the whole time, you'd probably fall asleep. Um, <laughs> it would be a kind of weird way to chant. Your, your voice would be going into the floor rather than out into the hall. Um, yeah, it's just there. There's an interesting theory. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, a number of the chants um, are um, taken from the Buddha's discourses, but some are poetic works. Um, some of them composed by um, Rajaganti C. Uh, Don, and and um, I heard one theory that um, this um, bowing down, like we do in the evening chanting, Gayena Chetasawa. Um, he uh, it, the theory is that uh, Rajaganti C uh, was uh, devised this, and he was uh, adapting from the Muslim uh, tradition. He looked at different religions. He looked at Christianity and Islam, and he liked this uh, the way the, the Muslims bow down on their prayer mat, and and so he incorporated that into um, the the Thai chanting. Um, um, whether or not that's correct, I don't know. But th these are conventions and forms developed over time in Thai Buddhism that you don't you don't find them. Uh, in other countries, like for instance, Nang uh, Papier. There's nowhere else I've ever seen in the world where people Nang Papier. In in Burma, um, when they chant the Patimoka, they Nang Yong Yong. <laughs> ah, no. If you if you only ever see in Thai, you think that doesn't look very very beautiful. Doesn't look very you know because we have this perception that this is polite, this is rip roy, and Nang Papier. You know, doing the rip roy. Well, that's that's a, uh, a convention that we have developed in Thailand. I think it is. I mean, it is. Uh, it does look nice, but it's not very practical. Is it? I, 
before I became a monk, I, I you know, used to sit meditation a lot. So I used to sitting cross-legged and thought, oh, you know, being a monk won't be a problem. And then I had to sit like this. It's so uncomfortable, you know, if you've never sat. Because it, like yoga is always like a balance of left and right. And this is, you know, you're all twisted to one side, aren't you? And you just kind of feel kind of weird. Um, but now I like it. I'm used to it. it, it. Even when I sit on an aeroplane, that's when I sit up here. <laughs> if there's enough room to sit up here, I do. Um, how to block negativity and insecurities from your mind. How to not be insecure and negative. Okay, well, I've got some bad news from you, for you, I'm afraid. Life is insecure. That's the point. It's really not secure at all. Um, and you just have to get used to that. <laughs> um, but, I mean, there are different kinds of insecurities. Of course. I mean, what I say by insecurity is, I mean, uh, your physical health um, is extremely insecure. Again, you're talking about um, youth. Like when you're, when you're in your 20s, in your teens and in your twenties, you know you can you can abuse your body. You can do pretty well anything, and within a day or two, you feel okay again. But then, when you get into your thirties and your forties, it's not the same. Uh, if you're not careful with your body, suddenly you find it's really difficult to get back into balance again. Um, and and this body can go wrong on you very easily all the time. So. The, the Buddhist idea is that we study, we, we bring these things into consciousness, we accept, we don't want them try to make the body other than it is. You know, we look after it, we give it rest, we give it good food, uh, we, um, we exercise the body, but that doesn't give you a right, you know, to be healthy. And some people who do a, um, you see, I've seen this over and over again, people who, who, who go to the gym every day and they do yoga and they eat vegan and they do all these incredible things. And it builds up this idea of I have a right to be healthy because of all the effort, all the time that I've invested, all the money I've invested in looking after my body. You don't. You don't have any guarantees at all. No guarantees. Uh, you have a better Obviously, it's better to do all those things than not to do them, to look after your body. But never, never think that because you do all those things, you're safe. Everything's going to be all right. Um, because it's not the way that human life is. And that's a heedless and, and dangerous way to, to look at things. Um, now, in terms of um, uh, well, what can you do... Um, you can have, uh, there are certain, a lot of insecurities that um, are created by our own thinking and by dwelling on things too much. And these, uh, this can be arrested or can be lessened uh, by mindfulness and by uh, being aware of what's going on in your mind. And when your mind starts to uh, dwell on the negative side of things. So this is where the negativity comes in. Um, it's always taking something and just going over and over and over and over and over and over it again. So it, it's just a, um, a habit, a mental habit that we develop without realizing. And it can be 
something we started when we were kids or maybe even from past life. But that's all it is. It's not who you are. You just have a, a habit of dwelling on the, on the negative. But in fact, this is um, a human characteristic and um, evolution, uh, evolutionary psychologists and, and um, this kind of people will point out that human beings are like hardwired to give more importance to bad news than good news. Um, the reason is if um, you know there's good news, so if you walk half uh, ten kilometers up that way, there's a there's a mango grove and you have some beautiful fruit to eat. Okay, that's that's good news. And then, um, but if you don't go all that way, um, yeah, there's maybe something else you can eat in the meantime. Um, good news is not like a matter of life and death. But if you say there's a man-eating tiger who was seen down in the garden this morning, you know, you really need to take. Uh, you can't just put that in the back of your mind and yeah, um, <laughs> uh, don't forget that. You, it, it's you need to know it because if you don't remember and you don't bear it in mind, you may end up dead. So bad news um, tends to be a matter of life and death. Good news, not so much. So over the course of of time. This is the theory. Human beings become a lot more tuned into bad news. Um, so that means that you have to, um, you know, make a conscious effort um, to um, move your mind in the direction of, of good news more, and not to um, start um, looking in the world as um, as more negative than need be. So it's not like trying just to um, develop positive thinking. Um, but to look more closely at the um, the complexity of what's going on, and there are things that we need bad things, negative things that we need to take note of. Don't just turn your back on them. Um, but there are also a lot of good things. And if you uh, if you read a newspaper, of course, newspaper is full of bad things usually. Um, but don't conclude from that. Therefore. The world is a bad place, but if you look at your own personal world, rather than the, the so-called world of uh, that you can find in Google Maps or um, in a geography textbook, but let's say the world of your experience, meaning the the people around you, the people that you know and you relate to every day, and then you say, what's the the uh, ratio? Of good news to bad news in your real world, your personal world, it's quite the opposite. Uh, there are far more um, good and positive things going on in your own personal world than in the conceptual world that you find in newspapers. And so that's the balance. It's, like I say, this isn't a kind of just think positive and don't think negative. That doesn't work, and it's not a very uh, intelligent thing to do either. Um, but it's more having that. Uh, faith that if you open your mind up and you look around you um, a little bit more closely, then there's a lot more good and wholesome and and um, positive things going on. So the um, one more thing in, t in terms of a sense of security, a wise or intelligent sense of security, um, then most important thing is keeping precepts. Keeping the five precepts is is what gives a sense of um, security and safety more than anything else. Uh, so.
I'm going to, I'm just going to carry on because we don't this is the last day so um if anybody's really keen to meditate you can just go downstairs and meditate by yourself otherwise I'll just does anybody want to do that no okay didn't think so <laughs> um when expectations lead to disappointment how do you stop yourself from expecting things from your loved ones well again it's we we bring this up and we study this this is part of life expectation um and ask yourself what expectations do you have of yourself what expectations do you have of others um do we suffer because of our expectations um is do we need to suffer because of our expectations um what kind of expectations are realistic what kind of expectations are unrealistic um so these are the kind of questions uh we need to be asking ourselves and sometimes you know we're very we can be um really unrealistic i think in the in the sense that we uh, we maybe loved ones we want them to be perfect um and this as you're growing up i think this is like um a turning point in your life the first time when you realize that your parents are not perfect you know because they're like gods when you're when you're a child small child um and your your father your mother are like the authority on everything um and they're the they're the model they're the leader they're the they're the god and then one day you suddenly realize that uh they have weaknesses they have faults um they have insecurities they have suffering and it's like an earthquake the first time something everything you thought was so solid it's your whole sense of, of you know we live in a solid reasonable um safe world is based on your relationship to parents and then the first time you realize that they 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 haven't got this worked out either you know um they're just making it up as they go along as well um that's really um you know frightening experience um if you see um parents in a state of despair or suffering it's such a terrible thing to see not just because of the compassion you feel for them but what that means in your world that the the pillars the the uh, those things that tell you this is a stable dependable world are not so stable this is why when they say talk about earthquake if anybody's been in an earthquake it's not just the danger of the earthquake but psychologically it's incredible uh, stressful to see the earth the very earth that you've just taken for granted all your life is suddenly it's not still it's not solid anymore it can break apart um this this can happen with with parents so the more that you're willing to recognize that you have to be able to take that on board um and 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 not feel resentful or angry that that's been taken away from you um and having realistic assumptions and uh, realistic expectations of um of friends realistic expectations of uh, loved ones uh, romantic partners or or um school friends or whatever it is yeah we all have weaknesses and defilements um and vices and 
and we have to be able to um, uh, accept that and not to say they shouldn't be that way. Um, doesn't mean we just like passive accept everything, but it's, yeah, there are causes and conditions that um, underlie the situation, and we can't um, just feel resentful at it or upset or disappointed um, because it's just not fair, is it? Really, I mean, if you uh, if someone's never promised you that they would be a certain way, but you decide for yourself you want them to be that way. And then when they're not, even though they never said they were in the first place, it's not their fault if you're disappointed, is it? Um, it's something you've created in your own head. So um, this part of mindfulness is um, being, being careful about what kinds of expectations we have of other people and making them as, as fair and realistic as we can. Okay, the train dilemma. Does everybody, anybody heard of the train dilemma before? This is, uh, if any of you are interested in um, social science and ethical dilemmas, and this is probably the biggest one of the last 20, 30 years, and there are many, many different forms of it. So the, um, uh, the questioner has uh, given one form of this and a diagram. To, but So here is the, um, let's say we have a train loose. You can't stop it. If you do nothing, the train will run over five people. But if you uh, pull a switch, then it will go that way and kill one person. So what would you do? Do you just allow it to kill five people? Or do you stop it and then you personally are responsible for the death of one person? This is the train dilemma. So they, <clears throat> and as I say, they, they, they've come up with so many different variations on this to test people's uh, feelings and, and uh, uh, responsibility of it. So what do you think, Ajahn Jill? For a, uh, as a monk, you see, it's 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 more straightforward because um, you you don't. I mean, you don't. Uh, you wouldn't ever um, uh, interfere and um, kill the one person. Uh, that's that's how a monk. I, I understand a monk, but my hesitation with all of these um, ethical dilemmas is that they're so simplified. You know, in this in any situation, there's just so complex all the different things and pressures and um, considerations. And that these are, um, that um, I, I, I'm hesitant to um, even give answers with these kind of things because um, in real life there are so many uh, there's so many more. It's not just a simple matter of A or B. There are so many different things going on and other alternatives. You're saying, if there are no alternatives, but that's the point. How do you know there are no alternatives? You'd look for other alternatives. Um, if there's five people up there, maybe you could just shout out, get off the track, you know, something like that. <laughs> so... 
Um, yeah, I don't really have a, and I don't like these kind of ethical dilemmas because uh, I think you're being set up um, by the person who sets up the, who establishes the the um, uh, the conditions, and that they're um, unrealistic. But as a, as a um, let's look at this in a in, in sort of a big picture kind of way. That this whole idea, and I think it's it's one which it is worth talking about. This idea of sacrificing a minority for the benefit of the majority. So you, you this is an argument come across in various forms in many ways, isn't it? You know. So so let let let's let's start this off. Let's say. Okay, 67 million people in Thailand. And you were told that um, if, you, if you were to um, shoot Mr. Gore over here dead, then you, you would save 67 million people. So would you do that if you had that kind of choice? Let, let, so I'm setting this up now. You... you would you would you be willing to do that? Kill one person to save sixty seven million lives? Let's have a show of hands. Don't do, don't don't worry. I'm <laughs> I'm going to judge you or anything. Just just um, how do, what do you think? Who who would think that that would be a worthwhile kind of thing to do? If you don't, you've got to explain why not. No, okay. Yeah. It's all right if you do. I'm not going to say bad people. Um, <laughs> Okay, those uh, someone who who doesn't agree. Can you give me reason why you wouldn't agree? Yeah. 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 Okay. That that's the train. I, so I, I thank you for that. But I'd like to come back to this. Like, kill one person to save sixty-seven million. Okay. This man's got this virus, um, and this virus has no cure. Um, and this per just you just leave this person, and here everybody in Thailand will die. Okay. <laughs> so you. you yeah so that's the that's the kind of bodhisattva idea and that that idea is actually um appears in the mahayana buddhist teaching on bodhisattva but so i i think that probably there will be many people um uh even majority of people who would say yeah to save 67 million lives I would take one. But then let's say, okay, what about killing one million people to save 66 million? That's still a huge profit. I mean, it's like 66 million saved and only one million die. Uh, okay, what about two million to save 65 million? Or kill 20 million to save 47 million? Would you do that? 20? What's the difference? 
Yeah, but you still save 47 million. <laughs> yeah. You see, th this is the, the problem with this idea of, you know, you sacrifice a minority to save the majority. You know, some people have to just make those sacrifices. Where do you draw the line? You know, what about uh, 67 million and you, uh, you, you know, you, you kill 35 million, uh, what is it, 30 million uh, in order to save 37 million or 32 to, you know, where do you stop? And what reason do you stop if you're putting forward the view that the majority must come first? Um, so, uh, for me, it's the moment you make that first choice that one person's life is less um, important or like life can be quantified, then you're on this slippery slope and it's difficult to, to get off it. Okay. By anyone who's interested, you can you can Google. I, I'm not sure it's called the train dilemma, and there's a lot of stuff on the internet about this because it's uh, um, a lot of research and a lot of uh, discussion of it. Um, today we see so many temples being run like business, sending monks to work at weddings, house openings, birthdays asking followers to give donations in return for luck and bun, amulets and charms. Does this not go against the core beliefs of Buddhism? Um, yeah, okay. First of all, um, you know, it's often the case that it's the, the lay people coming to the monks and asking for all these things. Um, and corrupting the monks as much as the monks corrupting the lay people, I think. Um, but uh, there are, you know, the, I was talking earlier about the, the vinaya, the monks' discipline, and although don't expect to know a um, huge amount, there are certain rules that you should know because um, often in Thailand, in Buddhist culture, everyone's afraid of making like, uh, a bark of... Um, of uh, anything concerning monks. If, mo if a monk asks you for something, it's very difficult to say no, isn't it? That's why monks are taught, you know, just be very, very careful before you ask anything from a layperson because it's very difficult for them to say no to you. That's how I was taught and how I teach. But one uh, thing that you, you need to know is that a monk is forbidden from asking anything from a layperson, except uh, water, uh, if he's very thirsty. And this, these days, water is more expensive than, <laughs> than, uh, than oil in the, for your car. So even that one, um, not even uh, there, unless it's water from a tap. Um, but a monk can only ask for, for something from other person. If all his robes have been, uh, have been stolen and he's wandering around naked, he can ask for a piece of cloth. Uh, he's half dead, he can ask for some water. Um, other than that, he's not allowed to ask for anything, um, except if the person has offered bawarana. And bawarana means you make an, like, an official, like formal invitation to a monk or a monastery. 
you say, I would like to offer Pawarana. And you can offer Pawarana for specific things or a general Pawarana. So let's say um, you, uh, you live around here um, and you have free time and you've got a car. And you say, um, Ajahn, if you ever need to go into Bangkok for some business, I'd be very happy to give you a lift. I give you Pawarana. Or somebody said, if you need to catch a train somewhere, I would like to offer Pawarana to offer the train ticket. Um, there's a very generous uh, one of my uh, lay supporters who said, Ajahn, if you ever want to visit your mum in England, I would like to offer Pawarana for a plane ticket. So that's a very generous Pawarana. But it can be from very, just very simple things, like if you need someone to come and uh, do some tidying up around Banbun, I offer Paw, I'd be happy to come and do some. It can be anything at all. But you have to, it have to be this form. You say, I'd like to offer Pawarana. You have to make it very clear with the monk that you would very much like to do this. Um, only then can he ask you. Um, the other um, case is if you're a blood relative of the monk. So I could ask my mother or my brother or my sister um, if I were really desperate, but I couldn't ask for my brother-in-law or sister-in-law because they're not blood relatives. Um, <clears throat> so those are the only uh, conditions in which a monk is allowed to ask anything. If a monk um, asks for anything, particularly money or donations, um, then that monk is breaking his precept and that monk is barb. And so if a monk asks for a donation and you don't know that monk or he phones you up or he, um, and tries to put some pressure on you, then you are actually supporting him um, doing something wrong. It's not bun. It's, it's the opposite of bun. Um, so don't feel intimidated. Don't feel that, or because a monk asks you, you have to do that, otherwise you know, it will be a really bad thing. This is why it's important to, uh, to know some of these rules, particularly the ones um, concerning monks and lay people, that, that make sure there's a correct relationship between the monks and the lay people. Um, and for and as women, you need to know that monks are not allowed to be alone with a woman ever, um, any place. Um, and a monk is not allowed to speak alone with a woman more than six sentences or six words, mean like absolute, just if somebody says, um, um, <clears throat> I've just been bitten by a snake, Where's the hospital? Do you know where the hospital is? Then a monk can say, "Yes, you go up here, and you say, <laughs> you you can do that." You know, so it's like really um, like important things. So um, don't ever get in that situation uh, where uh, you're alone talking with the monk, because uh, it may well be that everyone has uh, completely pure, proper intentions, but that's not always the point. Maybe that monk has an enemy. And he wants to gossip about that monk. He said, that monk, he was sitting alone with that young woman. I don't know what they were talking about. And then that gets about, and then your reputation um, gets quest uh, is pulled into um, question and the monk's reputation. And so these are very 
wise uh, wise rules that the Buddha laid down to protect uh, the sila and the reputation of both the monk and the lay woman. And then the rule, monks are not even allowed to touch money. Um, they're not allowed to use money. So um, if a monk, for instance, was um, to accept money from layperson, then that's he's make a serious uh, offense in his discipline. And if he was to go and buy something with that money, that's a second offense. And then if he, like let's say I went and bought this, with, you gave me some money, some cash, and I went and bought this. Every time I use it, then that's another offense. <laughs> so every time a monk uses something that he bought himself, he creates more bad karma. So there are very clear, um, precise rules, and, and a lot of the problems in the Sangha in Thailand these days is because almost no monks keep these rules. There, I don't know if it's even 5%, not probably 5%. The, the monks in the forest monasteries in northeast Thailand and a few um, isolated monasteries um, throughout the country um, but this is, uh, you know, one of the main reasons for the corruption um, in the monastic order. So, um, you know, this is don't ever put cash money into uh, monks' bowls on arms round because that more than anything else um, creates this um, likelihood that people dressing up as monks, like um, fake monks. You know, if you... Um, if you dress up as a fake monk, you can make a lot of money in Bangkok in the morning on arms round. Um, so don't, you know, don't do that. Um, um, so, so yeah, this, there's, there's a lot of um, these kinds of things going on. And you don't have to be very uh, outspoken and critical, but just if you see monks who are not keeping the monk's discipline or acting in these kinds of ways, then don't support those monasteries, don't support those monks. Well, this is why there's so much um, emphasis on on wisdom and understanding, um, because if you, yeah, if you make a, a cash donation or something, then there's that what I was talking about, like a purification. Yeah, you're giving something that you like hard-earned money. You worked for that. You made that money in an honest way, and you're giving it away out of kindness. Then that's that's boon. That's that's uh, something that. But if you look on the big picture. If you're not careful, then that can can actually have more detrimental effect than not. So it's good constantly to be um, considering these things and not just taking that generous impulse as the um, the proof that therefore it's right or a good thing to do. Um. Hmm. Is that considered, you know, a little asking for me? 
Um, again, it, it a little bit depends on on who that monk is, and if if it's a monk who's like um, who's known your family for a long time, and it's someone that um, you know, I mean, so. Uh, really, he should get in touch with um, a male member of the family rather than a young woman. That, that's so. That's not really correct. But if it's um, if your your family are like longtime supporters of the monastery, and and that monk is sure you'd really like to know, and you'd probably be a bit upset or noisy if you didn't know, you know, then you can understand why why he would say. But if it's a, a monk that you don't know, you don't have any, you've never been to Tambun at that monastery, you don't have any kind of connection, and then out of the blue, he said, who's that? Oh, I'm the abbot of, I, I live in this uh, monastery in northeast Thailand, and it's so hard, we're trying to build a sala, and we haven't got the roof on, as five years have passed by, and and uh, and we really need, you know, so really try to manipulate your uh, your kindness. Then um, no, so it it is a, a matter of um, the the intention of the monk also. And um, as I say, you do have a sense if it's someone. Sometimes there's not so much. I, I was talking about that specific bawarana, but a monk knows that. Yeah, in this case, that that person would really appreciate to know to be able to. Uh, to contribute to something without making a not if it it, it depends ex- exactly how how it's how it's put you know and it, it, certainly if it, if it's not um, like a direct appeal for funds but on the basis of a previous connection a relationship with a family to let them know that there is something uh, a, a merit making activity going on but. Uh, you know, for me or, or for monks, I'm saying, you know, when I teach young monks, ne- never put a, a lay person in a position where they feel that they can't say no. Um, that that that's really what you know, so that they don't feel gring jai that you know they don't really want to do it, but they you know don't do it anyway because they don't want to have a like a a ruang with a with a monk, you know. So, uh. uh, yes. Yeah, it depends. Like um, mostly, I you know I, I go on arms round and on uh, in uh, the villages in like Dangjangwat. So then everybody knows that you're you're coming, and they're already standing outside their houses. In in Bangkok, it's a bit different um, because you never know. You may be someone. Sometimes uh, somebody uh, parks their car, and then they jump out of their car and say Nimon. Um, there was uh, where I used to go at Bindabat in Bangkok. There used to be a lady who go jogging every morning, and she had like a tray on her head. She 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 went running along like this, and then when she sees a monk, she stops <laughs> and she nimonka and she saibat, and then and then starts jogging again. You know, so so uh, you have to be a bit more flexible. Uh, but what is um, what what is an offence is if a monk is. Um, Walking along this side of the road, and that's his route. Um, and then he sees out the corner of his eye. Uh, there's some. There's a really wealthy person, maybe with envelopes with money and things over there. And then he just sort of crosses the road. 
And you do see that sometimes, unfortunately. So, you know, then that's, that's not beautiful and not, not correct if monks are just um, following their greed. Um, but I, I think that the, the best thing, well, monks should have a particular route and stick to that route. Um, but if, if someone uh, does um, call out and say, you know, Nimon Kha, Nimon, you know, usually monks will, will stop. And I think in, in Bangkok, the, the dilemma for a monk is often that you, you, your bowl is full already. And if you don't have like a look-sit or someone with you, because I don't usually have that necessarily, um, and um, then somebody wants to offer you food, and and then I, you know, I've said before, I'm sorry, my bowl's full. You know, thinking people people say, okay, I'll give it to someone else, and then uh, someone get angry. You know, say, you know, like no meta. You know, I I wonder, <laughs> but actually, you're not supposed to take more food than you know over the edge of your bowl. Um, but but people give you like a big bag, and then you know, as a monk, you're walking through, and I hate that, you know, walking along with bags like this, you know, and everything. what are you going to do with all that food, you know, so. Um. Yeah, that's not correct. I mean, that's that's not how it should be done. Sometimes monks can sit on a chair, and, and uh, sometimes you probably know the monks have an ag- agreement with the owner of the store. Uh, so, once they receive it, then they they give it back, and then they at the end they get paid by the stallholder. So there are all kinds of that corruption like that these days. Um, but generally in in Thailand, um, you know, the correct way is that a monk has a route, uh, and if he's older and not so, you know, make a short route. Or um, but it's just to stand there and wait for people to come. It's it's not correct. But the reason why I, I mean. Um, in in England or in in uh, any Western country, then the monks stand um, because if you if you just walk like we walk in Thailand in England, nobody would put food in your bowl. They don't know what you're doing. They kind of it's just too kind of weird, you know. Uh, so uh, in England, you know, we go to the middle of a town and you stand there like this, um, and then it's incredible. People come and they say. Uh, and they want to give you money. Almost everybody wants to give you money. Um, and then you say, I'm sorry, I don't take money. And then they got even more intrigued. You know, well, what, well, what do you want? Um, <laughs> and uh, we want to give you something, you know. And they say, well, uh, we can only take food. This is for, for food. Oh, okay, just don't go anywhere. Just stay there, okay? Uh, and then people go in Tesco's or something, you know, and they come out with all this food, you know. It's like uh, incredible. And... Um, we, we, when the monks went to the West, we, we never thought that like Tudong would be possible in the way we do it in Thailand. And you wouldn't believe, like, um, last, two years ago, um, uh, two monks, they walked from a monastery in North California, in Redwood Valley, to Branch Monastery, which is uh, on the border between Oregon and Washington, like over a thousand kilometers. And they had no, no lay people with them, just two monks. And they've been about every day, places they've never been before, people who are not Buddhist, never seen a Buddhist monk before in their life. And I think there was only two or three times that they didn't get any food in, all that, in like walking a thousand kilometers through the middle of America. 
So there's something very special when monks are walking on arms, you know, it really seems to bring out the good in people if it's done in the correct way. And, and as I say, particularly if the monks don't take money, but it's only wanting food to keep themselves healthy and alive. Okay, we've run out of time. Time for your lunch. So um, we can end the session.